Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. On today's episode, I'm going to play you a conversation I had with Eric White. I've known Eric for a while, and it's just been so fascinating to watch his evolution from over the, let's say, the last, I think, three or so years, two to three years, evolution from mobile app developer to now someone who helps companies, many of which are like household names within the technology world. Companies like Pipedrive, for example. He helps companies like that make better decisions about their products and their business. So this is a sort of hybrid uh, moving the needle episode combined with some conversation about the the idea of, of empathy. Eric is, I think, one of the most perfect people for me to have that conversation with because uh, a good portion of his job is sort of um, professional empathy, for lack of a better word. Being empathetic in a structured, purposeful way so that he can um, gain insight into his clients, customers, or clients in order to help those clients of his make better decisions. So he has a lot to say about that. He has, um, judging, I think, from some content that he's posted, interviewed over a thousand people, which is <laughs> really impressive. That's a, you know, quite a, a data set and quite a, a corpus of experience that he's working from. And from that, I think he has some very insightful things to say about uh, empathy, the limits of empathy, and some, just some basic, very useful things that you can do as you're um, interacting with clients and other people where empathy is valuable. Hint, that's about everybody you could possibly interact with. <laughs> he has, uh, again, some very interesting insights about how to, how to practically be better at um, I, you know, I'm not quite sure whether to <laughs> empathy can be used as a verb or not, but you know how to do empathy in an, in a way that's going to benefit you and your clients and your business. So, um, I just was just as a sort of final note here, looking back at a Internet Archive version of Eric's um, site, which I think might he might consider his old site now, not his sort of main. Uh, presence on the internet, and looking at the positioning statement, um, and the company is called uh, Motul. Motul creates mobile web solutions that move companies forward by solving problems and creating opportunities. We help our clients increase efficiency, automate processes, and communicate better. I think it would be that's that's the positioning statement on on Eric's old website uh, from years ago. So this is not a current representation of his focus or what he's doing now. But I said it's been just so fascinating to watch his evolution. And I know that you might, from listening to this podcast, get the sense that my mission in life is to get self-employed software developers to stop writing code. I think it would be easy to to come to that conclusion. And I think that would be a misapprehension of what I'm trying to do. I do see the following, though. 
writing code has built-in limitations in terms of the value that you can create with it. Now, there are rare exceptions to those limitations for sure. Um, you know, you, you can look at very successful digital startups that have become wildly successful real companies and make the argument that, well, you know, the, the value was largely in the code or it was an idea expressed as software. And you would be right. Uh, I would not argue against that. But uh, we're not talking about digital startups here. We're talking about uh, people who provide professional services that are centered around building custom software. That's really, you know, the focus of who I'm speaking to on this podcast. And for you, for almost all of you, there will be a ceiling for the value that you can create. And it is, I think, one of the unhappy um, facts of life in the world of technology and software that because of the rate of change is, is relatively high, it's a lot of change, it happens quickly, the ceiling <laughs> can sometimes lower the ceiling on the value you create. And when that lowers... It's usually not your fault, and it's usually because of forces much larger than you that have to do with the rise and fall in popularity of various technology platforms. So what I'm trying to do is shine a spotlight on people who have moved past that ceiling that's imposed by the software platform itself, by the programming language, by the technology itself. And, you know, provide a, a place where they can tell their story and help them facilitate telling that story of how they move past that ceiling. So it's to connect this back to Eric. It's just been super interesting to watch him start out where his identity was like he and I worked together um, briefly, I think, in my positioning accelerator program for a few months, um, a few years back. I'd have to look up exactly when that was. So back then, his identity to the world, and I think to himself, was largely, hey, I'm a, I'm a software developer. You know, it was that positioning statement I read to you, which was what his website looked like back in 2015. You know, I create mobile solutions that move companies forward. And I think a lot of you can identify with that, first of all, in the sort of general nature of that positioning statement, and second, in seeing yourself as like the value that you contribute to the world is defined by your skill as a software developer. And it's, it's been super interesting to see Eric pursue what at that time I think for him was a sort of sideline interest in jobs-to-be-done research. And it's funny because if you – go to the Internet Archive Wayback Machine and kind of walk through this evolution of his website, you start to see um, a menu item pop up at some point that says, you know, JTBD research or something like that, you know, jobs to be done research. And that was a, a sort of, <laughs> I mean, you maybe could think of it a little bit comically as a virus that sort of, or, um, What's, uh, you know, the other, anyway, <laughs> sorry, uh, a sort of virus that took over his business. And what's interesting is that that 
little sideline interest turned into such a deep rabbit hole for him that um, it's I I think uh, I haven't really verified this with him, but I think he's just getting so much enjoyment out of his work now because he was able to pursue this interest and make the right decisions about turning that into a focus for his business, technically a, a horizontal specialization. And, you know, I think there's probably a, a sort of soft vertical specialization in the world of technology companies, but it's it's more than anything. It's a horizontal specialization. And he's made some smart decisions and turned that into a very successful, like that's the entire focus of what he does now. So it's just been wonderful to see that happen, and I think you'll get a sense of that coming out of this interview, uh, Eric's enthusiasm for the research that he's doing, the type of research that he does now that he gets paid to do by clients, and how that's enabled him to move the needle for clients. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Eric White as much as I did. Eric White, welcome to the show. Who are you and what do you do, Eric? So I do jobs to be done consulting. And what I mean by that is I have a business partner, a guy named Alan Clement, and I, and we usually do projects that fit into one of two categories. One is when a customer has an existing product and the product has been growing, maybe even to the point of scaling, and they need to find new markets for that product, or they need to get their product and marketing teams working together better or they need to find growth opportunities, then what we do is we have a research process that we will go in, we'll do research with them. So we'll interview about 20 customers over the course of a week and we'll understand what's really driving customer behavior and how they can see new patterns or new catalysts that are bringing people towards their product that they can use to influence how they market or how they develop the product. Mm -hmm. And then the second service we have is a new product development service where, you know, whereas the first one is about optimizing and, and improving what already exists. The second one is about creating what does not yet exist. And so obviously if there's no product, then we can't go out and interview customers who are, you know, who have signed up for it. We actually have to find a different type of approach. We have to recruit from the general population and there's a very different thing. So product growth or new product development is what we usually do. And then we specialize in using the jobs to be done theory. And we've built different research methods on top of that theory. Very cool. Well, there's so much so much that I want to ask you because, number one, I'm a big advocate of using mar the market research approach of interviewing, which is – exactly what you do. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that when you get down to super granular level, there's probably people who argue about exactly how to do it. But the big idea sure. is that by talking to people, you can learn so much. Yeah. You can learn things they would never um, publish online. They would never commit to in writing, that kind of thing. And that can be very valuable for consultants who are trying to better understand their clients. The other sure. reason I wanted to talk is because I think you responded to an email that said something, an email I sent to my list that said something about empathy. And mm, right. you have, I think, through your work, developed like an ability to, is it fair to say, uh, sort of do empathy on demand or have a process for mm. empathizing? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yep. The, the interview technique that we use is very much based on empathy. Well, okay. So let's, and that's just another thing that's so hugely important. So anyway, th- there's all this stuff I want to talk about. Um, <laughs> I guess let's, let's talk about empathy first. Sure. So, um, and, you know, I haven't like come up with a list of questions. We're, we're just kind of chatting here. What, what do you think makes it difficult for people like us to be empathetic with, I don't know, with our clients or <sighs> kind of a broad question, I know, but let's start with that. <laughs> what makes, what are the obstacles to empathy? That is very interesting. I, I think sometimes we can get very tied up in our own service or our own product. Mm-hmm. And therefore we look at people as consumers of that service or product. But in reality, people don't really want products. They don't really want service. They want their life to look differently. Ah. And so I think maybe starting from the perspective of looking at people through the lens of our product, that makes it really difficult to empathize with them. So can I, can I stop you there and and ask like, let's, could you kind of sketch out an example? Like, uh, okay, let's, I mean, if it's yeah, helpful, for sure. you can put me in the hot seat if you want. Like, you know what my services are, basically. So, if you want to uh, pick on me, mm-hmm. that's fine. <laughs> like, how, well, would, how about if I use how about if I use the example of Snickers? So, okay. in the jobs to be done community, Snickers is a a landmark case, landmark situation where they developed an empathetic understanding of their customers and they used it to great. Um, great gain. Okay. So back in the old days, Snickers used to think that they were competing with Milky Way. And so when they were trying to imagine ways to gain market share in their minds, they were just thinking about how can I get people to pick our candy bar rather than Milky Way? Okay. And so they looked at people as consumers of candy bars. And so they would, they would ask questions along those lines. They would do interviews around, you know, how are you picking between these two things? And, Everything they were doing is looking at them through the lens of their own, um, how would you, you know, their own manufacturer. And, you know, they, they look very similar, right? They're both made out of chocolate. They both have a brown wrapper. They're sold next to each other in the aisle. But empathetically, what they did is they started looking at people a different way. And they started looking for the situations of, you know, why, when are people buying this? Mm-hmm. And what they started to realize is that people were buying Snickers when they wanted a meal, Right. And so uh-huh. they, you know, people, you know, you, you know, the famous commercials about Betty White playing football and, um, you know, Snickers satisfies. And, and mm-hmm. so what they found is that people, people were thinking about a Snickers bar in the context of not having time to go get fast food or not having time to have a proper meal. Mm-hmm. And when they talked to people about Milky Way, they started realizing people are getting Milky Way because they're, they want a reward. You know, it's something that competes with a glass of wine or with a brownie or something like that. And they had that realization of, you know, my goodness, when I step back and when I look at the people that are actually consuming it and what's going on there, they realized they were not competing with Milky Way uh, on almost any level. And they realized they needed to compete against those other things in order to be successful. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, to kind of break that down a little bit, I, I can imagine that maybe – so when they're uh, – is I mean, is this like a worldview for them almost? Mm. Or definitely like yeah, a filter they're looking at the world through, right? Absolutely, yeah. So when they're looking at the world through that filter of our competition is Milky Way, 
they're probably asking questions like, you know, do you what sort of consistency do you want in the candy bar, and do you like this filling or that filling? It, is that about right? Like they would, that's about as far out of the box as they might think. Yes, that's that's my understanding. Okay, and, and so that those sort of um, constraints in their thinking were created by this egocentric worldview mm -hmm. or right. this like they they didn't question their own filter it sounds like is what you're saying that's right and it's the same thing you know I, i've got kids and there's a real temptation to be frustrated that my kids don't think the same way i do about for example picking up things off of their floor mm -hmm. or why do they why do they why are they I've told them 10 times to start their homework and they haven't started their homework yet. And so we have a tendency to look at people through our own life experience. Right. And that's, I think the natural thing for us. So uh, how, how might that, like in my case, I'm so sold on the value of specialization mm -hmm. that it might be tempting for me to just think that everybody else sees it the same way too. And maybe not think about, an alternate viewpoint. Well, I've, you know, you and I've known each other for a long time. And so, yeah, I think that you've always positioned, you've always put um, specialization in the context of how it benefits me, for uh -huh. example. Right. And so a lot of the conversations we've had, you've never talked to me about the right way to do specialization or, you know, theory behind specialization. It's always been, couched in look you know if you if you specialize then and and you limit the number of people who to whom you're valuable mm -hmm. you simultaneously become more valuable to them there's a second order effect to specialization and that's what you when in our work that's what you were always really good at at mm -hmm. doing and so i never felt like our conversations were about specialization at all right. i felt like they were about closing deals faster finding people that i was going to be able to create value for um You'll yeah. be able to charge more for my work, things like that. Right. So what changed at Snickers? Um, I mean, I, I think you sort of hinted at it. It sounds like they started to use not just different language, but maybe an entirely different sort of mental model for talking about the, the value of their product or like you Well, that's tell my me. understanding. And uh -huh. so I know I know people who were there when the change that you know when the change started to happen, but it's very evident even in the way that they marketed their product. So I'll send you a couple of links if you'd like to include that in the show notes. But I would, yeah. The way, they, the way they marketed their product before was very much about the features. You know, there's this very goofy advertisement where there's a guy playing the guitar and he's singing a song about mountains of nougat and <laughs> peanuts. And, you know, he's just, he's just simply just talking about the product and what it's like. Uh-huh. And then after they had this change of mind or change of heart, that's when you started seeing the Snickers commercials you know and love, like the one with Betty White playing football or, you know, people at a party. And one of the people, you know, one of the guys turns into Joe Pesci. And, um, you know, it, it became much more about the person and the situation that they were in. So I know that uh, how, at least how they changed their marketing was very different. But then also – stories that I've heard that were also to me really interesting is they also changed their product. And so when they realized that people were coming to the product in order to replace a meal, they started to realize there's, there's a sensory effect that you want to create. And so you want to make it so when someone bites into the Snickers bar that it feels like it's 
actual food. Uh-huh. And so they added more peanuts and they, they made it so it was, you know, the, like when you bite into it, like it kind of fought back. And so, you know, substantial changes to the product as I understand it and to, um, and to the messaging. And I don't know, this may be something that you'll want to edit out, but what was interesting to me is the people that really came up with jobs to be done in the very beginning were people who were very focused on sense, the sensory experiences that people had in, in food. And so they were really curious about, you know, how does, how does, how does what the experience with food, how does the experience with food change the interaction with the product? Or, you know, how do you engineer things like, you know, the, I don't know how, how tough the food is in order to create, you know, in order to go back to what someone's job was. And so it was actually through that work in the food space that a lot of jobs to be done theory got its start at the very, very beginning. I had no idea. What what an to me what a strange and unexpected sort of origin story, right? Because um, jobs to, to be done, uh, you know that that sort of approach or idea about doing research now I, I don't know maybe it's just the bubble I'm in just seems so talked about in the world of digital products. I mm-hmm. am just I know yeah that's such an old school um, origin story. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, which is really satisfying to me because the you know when we there's it's relatively recently that I think that people have really started thinking about digital products as being products at all, and so it should you know there's there's some satisfaction to me that as we look at digital products, a lot of the thinking that we have about the product is rooted in very old school products. I mean, these people I know they they worked at Oscar Mayer, they worked for you know companies like that, so it's very much rooted in old school product. That's interesting. So as you are um as you are preparing to undertake this kind of research, is the re- is is your interaction with people when you're when you're talking to them super scripted or is it more improvised based on what they say or if you imagine that as a sort of continuum, where do mm-hmm. these kind of interviews land on that continuum? We we are not scripted at all. Okay. So we have a couple of convers you know, we have a couple of conversation starters. We've got a couple of tricks that we can use if if the interview is not going well. But in general, we we have just a couple of intro questions that we start with and and we use the term we follow the energy. Okay. So if that's and I think that can be another thing that can really make it challenging to be an empathetic listener is because if we have a script or we have the specific questions that we're trying to answer it's almost like a survey. Like I remember one time I got a survey from this body shop that had done amazing work for me. Mm-hmm. And I was going through and I was filling things out and I was like, I wish you guys would call me because I want to give you, I want to tell you how awesome you are yeah. and what a great job you did with these survey questions. And you're asking things that are important to you, but not important to me. And so when we're interviewing someone, we may have, we may have things that we're curious about, but we find it very important to follow the energy and, if someone starts to get excited about a topic, we just let them talk about it and we ask probing questions and, and get them, um, get them to discuss. Okay. So yeah, I I did not know what you were going to say in response to that question about the continuum from scripted to totally improvised Mm -hmm. or following the energy. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was, and I'm, I'm sort of glad that it it is that way because that lets me ask my next question, which is, (laughs) um, you know, with something that's written or scripted out ahead of time, you can try to kind of iron out whatever bias 
your worldview might mm-hmm. um, might kind of try mm, to bake yeah. into those questions. But with something that's more improvised or more just of a genuine conversation, it seems like it might be harder to know your own biases. And so I'm curious, you said follow the energy. Maybe that's the secret, but are there other things that you do during those interviews so that you make sure your own biases are not uh, clouding your vision or preventing you from being empathetic? So one of the things that will happen when when I'm doing interviews with Alan, who Alan, I don't know if I mentioned, um, I'm, Alan Clement is my business partner. And mm-hmm. sometimes when we're doing interviews, one of us will – if the question is longer than 10 seconds, then you're probably introducing bias and your own opinion and judgment into things. Oh. So the question should be very open-ended. Yeah. For example, tell me about if someone's, I don't know, if someone's describing a story, you could say, you know, tell me about, have, have you felt that way before? Or when, you know, tell me about the last time you felt that way. Or mm-hmm. you said you were very excited. You were very surprised that the product behaved this way. Have you worked with products in the past that did not behave that way? Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to keep the questions um, open-ended. Right. It's very important to never ask, never directly ask why I have found. So when you directly ask why, then it really puts people on the defensive and it can set up the line of questioning so that it becomes, um, there's a lot of judgment that's involved. So asking questions about how and when are really good uh, for for that, and then the rest of it is really just you know a skill and listening back to interviews and you know if you listen back and you find yourself um, doing that, then it gives you some sense of where you need to you know what you need to change and and yeah so thinking of it as a skill I think is very important. Oh, that's great. I don't have you come across this book called Never Split the Difference by this guy Chris Voss? <laughs> I do. It's actually sitting on my desk. I've I've oh, started funny. reading it. Oh, it's so good. He gives that same advice, and the context is, I think, both very similar and very different. Uh, <laughs> pretty high stakes. Yeah. <laughs> Hostage yeah. negotiations. and Yeah, for the folks at home, this is a book on negotiation by a former FBI hostage negotiator. And, but it, it's, it's in a kind of business – advice is meant for people in a business context. But he also says any questions where you're like, why – where you start with mm. why yep. can be troublesome in a, in a delicate situation. And I think, I, you know, I, like if I'm interviewing you, I wouldn't call this a delicate situation on the same yeah. order as yep. doing market research or doing a high stakes negotiation. So I think I can ask why, and it doesn't have quite the same negative effect, but that's so interesting that, you found exactly the same thing, which is it puts those it puts people on the defensive, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't that the, the yeah. bottom line? Yeah, it, it makes it changes something. It just kind of changes the tone where they're like, "Huh, now I have to justify my thinking to this guy." That's absolutely that's the best. That's a perfect way to describe it. Mm. And and also in addition to that, people don't know why. You know, you're. The thing is, is our product and service is not really as important to people as we want it to be. Uh-huh. And so people don't really think about why. And so if you, if you ask them that question and you put them on the spot to answer it, that is the type of question that what, what you want to do is you want to ask questions that someone would answer the same way every time. Okay. And so if you ask someone, if you ask me, Eric, why did you buy that Snickers bar? I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really embarrassed that Philip knows I got this Snickers bar. And, oh, well, you know, I never buy Snickers. I mean, I, n- I would never do, you know, I'm so concerned about myself. I would never do it. But there was this one, you know, I was in, 
And so we'll start to we'll start to rationalize it or based on uh-huh. based on how we feel. But then the, if you ask me the same question again in two days, I may give you a very different answer. Right. That's the that's the reason that why is a bad question. Right. The other reason is yeah, just how and when. It's it's really not the customer's job to tell you why. It's it's your job to ask good questions, get good data, and then you really need to be the one who's answering the question why. Is my opinion. Okay, that's that seems hugely significant to me, and um, so let's see here. What can you kind of? Uh, we're sort of starting to get down into some of the mechanics of mm-hmm. having a conversation where the goal is for you to understand somebody else's world much mm-hmm. better. Right. So, I guess let's talk about some of the mechanics of how that might unfold. Uh, how okay. long? How long are these interviews typically? They always last an hour. Oh, okay. Um, do, do they ever? I mean, they always last an hour. <laughs> I'm being a little picky, but. It, why is that? Like, why why an hour? Why not a shorter or longer period of time? A longer period of time is um, it hopefully runs I didn't the just, risk of just no, hope, hopefully I no, didn't no. put you on the defensive there with that why question. Anyway, no. go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a it's a great question. The, okay, so more than an hour is just too much. It's too much of my okay. time. It's it's too much of the other person's time. I mean, it's really hard to. Does get it, people to spend more than an hour on the phone with you. Okay, so there's that logistics. Does it kind of wear people out for it to be longer does, than an hour? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And and so yeah, and so you just there, there needs to be some sort of a constraint, and so we find yeah. that an hour is good on the top end. On the shorter end, okay. So I have this belief that anybody you can ask people will tell you shocking details about their life if you ask. Right. I mean, I, I cannot even tell you. We, I mean, we could spend the whole hour just talking about things. I was astonished that just that people cr- shared crazy with stuff. People told you with no no warning yeah, it was we, coming. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a I'm a stranger who's just asking questions. But the thing is, is that it takes some time to get there. Okay. And so trying to put it into 15 minutes. I, so I'm not a big believer. I don't I don't know how you are, but I know I know it's popular to want to listen to audio books on one and a half times speed yeah, right right well i can't I, I that doesn't really interest me because i'm a lot more interested in in absorbing the the information so in the same way i don't you know it's hard for me to hack reading a book faster it's it's hard to hack into a conversation and get to that level of trust i mm-hmm. suppose so first of all when when we do the interviews people a lot of times think they're customer satisfaction interviews and mm-hmm. they've never it's it's very rare for someone to have the types of conversations with people that that we do, and so we really have to get them settled in and help them understand what our real motivation is, and that we don't care if they say something good about the product or if they say something bad about the product. We just we just want to hear their story, and do, so it takes some time a, to really establish that that's true. Okay, do you have a sort of um, a script, for lack of a better word, or like kind of a standard thing you do at the top of the interview to to sort of set all those expectations or help people get out of the box they're in where they're thinking this is customer satisfaction interviews yeah so okay. philip i'm i'm here with my with my colleague alan uh-huh. and we're doing some research for snickers and 
you know, we know you responded to the survey and you said you bought a Snickers bar at some point in the last month. And so what we'd really like to do is just talk to you about the experience of buying it. You know, what was going on the day that you bought it and think of us almost as like we're, we're filming a documentary about this purchase of this Snickers bar. And so you can say terrible things about Snickers. You can say great things about Snickers. It's not going to make or break our day one way or the other. So just think of it as really just this is about you and your experience. Um, it's less about the candy bar itself or, or anything like that. So there are no right answers. There are no wrong answers. There's nothing that we're, we're trying to hear other than just what's important to you. Oh, that was so natural, man. You've got so much. Yeah. I'm sure you've, you've done that hundreds of times, perhaps. I've said that, I've said that a lot of times. And then, so, you know, you can, you can say that. And yeah. then, and so it's, it's really, you know, so then going from there, it's, it's, you know, just starting to ask questions just about them. You know, tell mm-hmm. me about, tell me about where you live and, you know, what's, what's your family situation like and what kind of work do you do? And, you know, then easing into, you know, well, tell me about when you first started thinking about buying that Snickers bar or where, you know, where were you? And so just things that you can, just things to ask them that get them back into the situation of, of making that purchase. And by the way, I've done this for little bitty products, not, not Snickers itself, but you know, products right. that are like Snickers. And I've also done it for um, very expensive. The first person that ever hired me to do this was a very high priced consultant. I mean, the kind of guy that's charging two to four hundred thousand dollars for a project, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so this type of conversation works. And as far, I, I've not found a setting where it doesn't work. So okay. very high price B two B consulting, all the way down to, you know, very seemingly inconsequential food product. So you, you would not change anything about the format, even if let's say that uh, this high price consultant was hired by. You know, um, a really, you know, a midsize manufacturing company that's mm-hmm. doing a hundred million a year in revenue, and the CEO like seems too busy. You'd still ask for an hour. You'd still start with those kind of basic rapport yep. building questions. Okay. Yep. Okay. Uh, you know, and I, I was astonished when I did that. So you know, it's it's, and this this can maybe be a good segue into talking a little bit more about empathy. But one of the things that I was really surprised about was. I think I did 15 interviews for that project and four of the P and these are, these are all executive level people. Right. Um, four of them actually cried during the interview because they were going back to remembering a very stressful situation in their lives. You know, the time that they felt really stuck and they felt like their career was being jeopardized. Wow. My and, mouth and, uh, is hanging open here. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it was, it was shocking to hear one guy, one guy told us, he said, you know, his, his first interaction with, um, with my client, this guy named Chip, uh-huh. so Chip was my client. Um, he's, so I was like, well, tell me about this first meeting that you had with Chip. And the guy's like, well, he leans back in his chair and he puts his hands behind his head. And he's like, I'm going to be honest with you is that it felt like being stripped down naked and dragged into the middle of the town square to be flogged. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, that's a great thing. You know, when someone says that's maybe another tip in these interviews is when someone says something like that, don't go on to the next question. Okay. Dig into that. Like, what do you mean about, what do you mean about stripped down naked? Like un- unpack that for me. Exactly. What is, what is it like to be stripped naked and drug uh-huh. into town square and, and flogged? And that's when people will really start to tell you when they, when they open up and say something that significant, um, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a story there. Okay. 
One of the things I want to get to a little later in this conversation is how do you move from those kind of details, which are amazing, but how do you kind of back out into the more 10,000 foot view and see the pattern that you're probably looking for so that you can actually make a recommendation or your, or your client can make a decision based on what they're seeing. Well, that's but, such a good question. Yeah. yeah. You want to just talk about it? I, Cause I can answer it. I think pretty quickly. Okay, sure. Yeah. It's, it's really important to have a data model. And so in the same way that if you were doing a survey, you're, all of the responses are going into a database and you're able to classify those data in, in various mm-hmm. ways. It's the same thing for interviews. So interview is just a different type of research technique. And so there are different types of data that we're always looking for. And so what we want to find out is we want to, we always want to hear about catalyst events. Okay. So that is something that, that propels it's, it, it propels the story forward. Um, there's, and, and there are always, there are always those events. And so, for that particular guy in that situation, I can tell you whenever there was a big organizational change happening, whenever they were installing some major new system, like, you know, getting SAP or Oracle mm-hmm. or any, any type of, we, you know, we just, you just start hearing those things over and over and over when you, when you hear the, we're always looking for catalysts. Okay. What were the, what were the really big things that, that happened? And you can start to identify patterns in those. Okay. Um, so the other thing that we look for is oh, go, go ahead. So, so my wife said something mean to me, and I wanted to get a Snickers bar or like that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or I was I was stuck at the airport, and I I only had ten minutes before my flight was going to leave, and I was starving, uh-huh. and I was going to go on a, you know, a from San Francisco to New York, and yeah. I I looked at Applebee's, and the line was out the door, and yeah. I went by McDonald's and there were 75 people on the line. I knew I was never going to get anything there and I was desperate. And so I passed by the bookstore and nobody was there. And so I went in and found a Snickers bar and got uh-huh, that. Uh-huh, right. Okay. So okay. Yeah, different, you know, different, different events mm. that, that people find themselves in. The other thing to look for is constraints. So what are blocking people from, from getting what it is that they want? Mm-hmm. And that's a, uh, so, you know, that's maybe the, the thing about the Applebee's or the, or the McDonald's, you know, it's like I, my situation is that I'm in a huge hurry. I'm trying to get on a plane. I'm, I'm, I have to work on the plane and I need something to give me some energy besides, you know, the, the bag of peanuts that I know I'm going to get for a six hour flight. The constraints then are, you know, I didn't have time maybe for Applebee's and I, I, the line at McDonald's was really long. So it's like the other, the things that we start to look at that are, that are hindering us you can, you'll find a lot of, if you talk to enough people, you'll start to really see a trend in, in those constraints. And those represent really big opportunities either for marketing or for, um, you know, telling us different ways to deliver our, our product or service. Mm, interesting. Is that standard jobs to be done stuff or is this, is this data model you're talking about is, is more what you and your business partner have evolved on top of that? That's something I think that we're pretty proud of is that, yeah, yeah, I think we've really developed out that, that data model. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're trying to, to get out. We're, you know, we're trying to improve it and, and make sure it's, it works in the context of some of our different client engagements, but yeah, really having um, a a formal data model has been pretty, I think something that we're trying to introduce and and help to uh, move the jobs community forward. Interesting. Thank you. So, what are other things that make it functionally difficult to actually, I don't know, I mean, 
is empathetic is empathy is like a state of mind or is it a thing you do I, I kind of struggle to even figure out the right word to like be empathetic or do empathy what mm-hmm. other what mm-hmm. other things make it on a practical level uh difficult to achieve that so the the amount of time that an interviewer has so for example if we're training a group of people on how to do the interview. Usually the interview is pretty exciting. The, the process is, is interesting and, and empathy seems to be having a, it's, it's day in the sun right now. Right. And so people are generally pretty eager to, to do that. Once they see the interview in action, they're really eager to go out and try it. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of discipline about doing it the right way. And so one of the things that we tell everyone is that when you're doing one of these hour long interviews, you have to plan for it actually to be a two hour bucket of time uh-huh. because once the interview is over, you have to then go in and start to put data into this model that, that, that we describe. I mean, there's, there's a debrief process and our, you know, we, we try to put things in, in sequence. And so, you know, what was the, what was the first, if we were to put things on a timeline of what we just heard, you know, what was the, what was the order of events and believe it or not, that type of thing, often creates a lot of discussion and disagreement because sometimes maybe we heard, well, they said January, but did they mean January, 2017 or January, 2018. Uh And so we have to have a lot of discussions about sequencing things the right way. And then also just fleshing out what it was that we heard Mm -hmm. and making sure sometimes, sometimes the interviewer can use their imagination a little bit too much and think that they heard some things that they didn't actually hear. So it's really important that hour right after the interview is the is a very valuable time to get all of that information out and, and have discussions about what what data were just collected. But people are also very busy and they don't want to, you know, most people don't want to be a professional interviewer. And so um, it's very difficult to convince people to spend the right amount of time to make sure that they're gathering. That's That's the other biggest hurdle that I feel. In fact, I, I find that to be more, more of a hurdle than, you know, using empathetic skills. That's so interesting. In, in emergency medical care, there's this idea of the golden hour, which is mm. you know, like the hour after some really, you know, bad accident is the most important one in terms of whether that person lives or dies. If they can get the care they need in that hour, their chances of living are much higher. I mean, maybe that's interesting common sense, but they actually, I think it might not be because they have a term for it, which is the golden <laughs> hour. Yeah. Um, and it also reminds me of the, the whole kind of eyewitness effect, the unreliability of eyewitnesses, because you, the interviewer, are a sort of eyewitness, but even your own recollection of that experience is, is faulty. I guess if you're not doing what you would recommend, which is having this disciplined debrief process. Right, right. Mm. With a second person, I don't know if I don't know if I mentioned that, but it's it's always important for us. I mean, for the work that we do, which you know, when people are hiring us to do it, it it's got to be done the right way. Yeah, um, we in in our work, I, I will not do interviews anymore just by myself. Oh, so you're just like a cop. You got to have a partner <laughs> out I gotta there have, with you. <laughs> <laughs> I do, and and there's there's definitely cop like dynamics. In fact. I, I really think of it more as an interrogation than an interview. Oh. And, um, and yeah, so, you know, having a second person there is, is really helpful. Yeah, so for, so for they're, cop, bad cop. they're there for the interview, not just afterwards for the debrief That's with right. you, but they're there for the whole thing. 
That's right. And a lot of times when we do, when we do our work, it's actually participatory with the client. And so um, we will, we will do the interviews and ask the questions and there will be seven or eight people in the room listening. Okay. Wow. And then everyone is involved in the, in the debriefing process. Interesting. Interesting. So you're not like going away and doing this research and then, you know, slapping a stack of paper, so to speak, on your client's desk. It's, it's much more participatory than that. I find that that's the best process for us because it's, I'm not a, I'm not a good enough or persuasive enough report writer that um, I should, you know, it's a skill that I need to develop, but it's a whole lot easier for us to help change, you know, introduce some sort of a new way of thinking into an organization when it's participatory. Yeah. I'm not so sure that there's going to be that much value in becoming an awesome report writer. I think most of those are, they're not the most effective tools for, like you said, uh, creating change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could be, it can be very discouraging. Yeah. When I've, I've written reports and had conversations with people a year later and you realize that report has just been sitting in their inbox and yeah. never did anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the fate of a lot of, um, you know, digital books or a lot of books, period, you know, like, oh, uh, sure. people buy the book and they're like, great, I get the green check in that box. I don't actually have to do anything different now. <laughs> anyway, uh, you scale that up to a big corporation and it's okay. We spent a hundred thousand dollars on this, um, this research and we've got the data. So let's move on to yep. repeat the status quo. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, okay. So how do these, how, how does this research end up moving the needle for your clients? Like what kinds of changes happen as a result of them getting this insight or this, having this empathy for what their customers are experiencing? Usually it's, it's one of a few different things. So we did a, we did a project for, I think, I think they've talked about it publicly so I can, I can talk about it publicly too. We did a project with pipe drive mm-hmm. and they are a, um, sales software, a, a, a CRM of sorts, and they were just a really fast-growing company. I think when when we started with them, they had somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty thousand paying customers. They had hundred and fifty or two hundred employees that were working out of three different cities. You know, they were in Tallinn, Estonia. They were in New York, and then I think they were there was some other city in Europe. I don't I don't remember where, but you know just scaling and they were really struggling to get all of their different product teams to work in a, how did I see this to stop working in a silo and, you know, have some sort of process or some sort of way of thinking that would unify all of the different teams. Mm -hmm. And so that was a, a big thing was having, you know, giving them the experience of doing this research and seeing the market in a, in a new way, really gave them the ability to manage 12 different product teams and, and their interactions with the, with the marketing team. So I guess it was a staff efficiency or a staff unity was a big thing, Mm -hmm. but also um, it it also gave them a, a sense of who they were really competing with or how their product was really appealing to people in the market. And so, they found that a lot of times, you know, people were who were buying their product were considering whether they were going to hire another salesperson. So it was less about competing against Salesforce and it was more about competing against, you know, adding someone to the sales team or, you know, things like that. So mm-hmm. it, I think it's the, 
sorry, your question was was a really good one. I, I hope that I've answered it, but in that case, it has to do the the way that it changes how they think about things is it gives them a good understanding of what's creating demand for their product so that they can understand the types of things that they should work on or that they need to not bother working on. So it helps them understand what's important in their roadmap. Mm-hmm. And it also helps them understand those catalyst events because those are really, if someone is is getting, you know, coming to your product because they're starting to build a sales team, you need to make sure that you're helping them be successful in building a sales team. Right. And, and the product is not about making sure that, you know, the button, the button that they click works every single time or the right way. I mean, that's, that's all really important, but really what you're doing is you're trying to help them be successful in, in building a sales team and things like that. So I think getting some real clarity around what they should be focusing both their messaging and their product development on. Can, can you help the, the folks at home or who are listening to this, maybe who are, um, don't have as much experience working with companies like Pipedrive, mm-hmm. which I, I guess I would, where would you put them in the market? Like sort of a mid to upper tier um, software as a service company. So they're not, I mean, technically, I think at this point, Adobe is a software as a services company. You know, Microsoft right. is largely a SaaS company because, I mean, at the end of the day, SaaS is more or less a billing model more than anything. There's like a pricing model for, for software. I think you could argue it's, it's bigger than that. Hmm. Yeah. But um, anyway, if we, if we consider like Microsoft and Adobe to be the top end, you know, Oracle companies like that to be the top end of the SaaS market, then I think pipe drive is somewhere in the middle. I think so. Yeah. Somewhere like, you know, an intercom or a base camp, they're probably in that same territory. Right. What are the con and this is purely speculative, uh, but mm-hmm. what are the consequences for a company the size of PipeDrive if they'd made the wrong decision in the area where y- your research was helping them make a better decision? So it's uh, I don't I don't think that it would it wouldn't destroy the company. Sure. Okay. So not that catastrophic. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely not that catastrophic. Um, okay. So the question is, what would be the consequences if it if yeah. Adopting this way of thinking did not work. Well, or if they just if they made the wrong decision, like if they hadn't done the research, the due diligence, and we are this is purely speculative, okay? Mm-hmm. Right. But you know, are we talking like tens of millions of dollars, or you know, a couple thousand dollars, or like what's the scale of the damage if they'd made the wrong kind of decision? Yeah, if they made the wrong kind of decision, well, it's. I would think about it less maybe in terms of dollars and cents. Okay. And I would think about it more in terms of how it might, how it might impact their growth. So we first started working with them in the fall of 2016 and they had 30,000, they had 30,000 customers, you know, people who Mm -hmm. were paying them on a month to month basis. Okay. I believe I just saw an article that they published that they crossed um, the 70,000 user threshold. Okay. So, I think what would happen is, you know, any when when you're in a growth company like that, you have to keep growing. There's mm-hmm. pressure, you know, when you're having a hundred percent year over year growth and you start to take on investors and people start to build out financial models, projecting that this is going to be the the type of growth that you're going to experience. Not hitting that is a really big deal for the mm-hmm. company. And so it hinders relationships with investors and it hinders ability to do future rounds. And so I think for them, it probably would, it would, it would have hindered their growth 
um, definitely, which is almost like losing revenue because, you know, you're projecting, if right. You're, if you're basing financial projections on growth, that probably would have been the biggest threat. Okay. So, so growth is job one and they would be uh, underperforming at that job compared to what is possible otherwise. Well, yeah, because I mean, in their example, they had seven founders and mm-hmm. I, I don't know the exact details. I mean, I, you know, I, I've spent just a little bit of time with them, but yeah. I see often with SaaS companies that are in roughly that stage of growth that the founders are having to step out of product and marketing decisions and they're needing to focus on other things. Right. But they're struggling because their, their staff, it's, it's hard for them to maybe trust that the staff is going to have the same type of instincts as them. And so everyone is in a, everyone from literally from the founder all the way down is in a position where their, their skills and abilities are stretched. Mm-hmm. And the, the less time that executives are spending on growth and building their market and finding new opportunities and driving culture change, the less time that they're spending on that, the more, the more, you know, there's, there's like, they're just wasting time. And, and mm-hmm. um, that's the, I think that's the big risk for them. Yeah. And again, just to be crystal clear for the folks at home, we are totally speculating here. Like this is not, <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, we are not I, industry analysts, but um, I think you just demonstrated Eric um, a, a sort of a, a definitely a big facet of empathy, which is maybe if, one of those founders was listening, they'd be like, oh yeah, this Eric guy gets us. He understands, you know, what the kind of stuff that keeps us up at night. And that leads to my next question. Um, how do you know if you're doing empathy right? Like there's, there's like, okay, I did the best I could. I get a pat on the back because I did the best I could. Sure. But from a more like the, the outcome of it or from a functional perspective, how do you know if you're doing it right? Okay, so this is the most unpopular opinion that I hold right now. Oh, nice. I, I have I have offended people at dinner parties. Oh. Um, I have frustrated my wife, who is a um, a counselor, and so uh-huh. she uses empathy a lot in her work. Uh-huh. But I think it's very important for everyone to understand that empathy is a tool. Okay, it is not a virtue. Uh-huh. And like any tool, it has its limits. So the guy who really did a lot of modern work on empathy and probably the reason that we really know a lot about it was this guy named Heinz Kohut. And he was this Jewish man. He lived in Austria during World War II. I mean, look him up. The guy's the guy's really pretty interesting. How, how do you spell anyway, his last name? Kohut, K-O-H-U-T. Thank you. And so he did this. I found out about him, um, my my business partner and I were having a conversation and he was telling me this story about Heinz Kohut literally three days before he died, gave this speech at some, some industry conference. And he said, he felt like he had this sense of responsibility to explain some things about empathy because he had seen it abused. Uh Uh-huh. So there's this, there's this issue. There's this question about whether empathy can be used for harm as well as for good. And so Kohut would tell this story about how the, the Nazi army, army, when they were invading Poland and Netherlands, the Netherlands, would attach a siren to their Stuka dive bombers. And, and this is the quote. It said that these dive bombers would create an uncanny noise that seemed to get inside the heads and hearts of the civilian population, causing empathetic distress. 
Hmm. Although the sound, although it may sound strange to say it, especially after reading this other person, this was based on the Nazi army using empathy with the victims. Oh, interesting. Because they and, were trying to imagine what it would be like and I guess make it the most terrifying version of what it could be like. Yeah, that's right. Because every, everyone in the city would hear the bombers. Uh -huh. And so even if you didn't get bombed by it, you had this, you had the terror of knowing that you may, you know, you don't know where the siren is coming from. And so, right. It could be uh, you. It could be you. Yeah. Yep. And so um, it, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was used in, in that way. And so it's this really powerful tool but it's got limits. And mm -hmm. I've, I've found that there are ethical limits, there are skill limits, and then there are practical limits to it. Right. And so the ethics we, we just talked about, I mean, if mm -hmm. you're, if you're empathetic with another person, you can find out their weak spots, you can use it against them. You can, you can use empathy for manipulation. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we need to talk a lot about that, sure. but then there are these skill boundaries too. Right. And so I think it's healthiest to think of empathy as a data collection tool. And so it's, it's useful for making observations, but then what I think maybe, maybe we, we skip or we, what, what can, what we need to make sure we do is you, you sort of turn on the empathy and, and you listen and you ask good questions and you gather the information that you can, and then you have to turn it off and you have to start to form some conclusions, but it doesn't mean that you stop empathizing I mean, you, you, you draw those conclusions and you continue to have conversations with other people and you refine those conclusions. So it's really helpful to me to think of it as a data collection process. So there's, there's some skill boundary there. And then the last thing, the, the practical boundaries, is that it's really easy for empathy to dovetail into projection. And so I have been in meetings. I, I, did, a, I did a project with a company that sells a credit product. And so we were talking to people who were signing up for this credit product and we heard some really sad stories. Mm -hmm. And so in a practical sense, you know, we've, when, when we're doing this work, you know, everybody's busy. And so you've got an hour for the interview. Maybe you've got an hour for the debrief if we're really successful. Well, anytime that you spend starting to speculate on why that person thought a certain way or how they might react to a different situation, things where it's like, you really don't, you, you don't know, you didn't gather that information. Then at that point you're speculating. Right. And so at best you're wasting time talking about something that's not really truly data at worst, you're actually thinking that you are producing data and you're going to use that type of information to make a bad decision. So for, you know, our peers, like, you know, me and you and, and other people who do the type of work that we do, if we, if we start, I don't know, if we're going into a, a negotiation on price and we try to use empathy and we think about, well, what, you know, what's going on in their situation and how would I feel if I were in that situation? It's, we, we can't speculate on what another person wants or is thinking or what their limits are. We actually have to interact with them to be able to empathize and, and get that information. That is really interesting. Yeah, I was, as you were explaining some of those limitations, I was thinking, uh, you know, if you have a child, I assume as a parent, I'm not a parent, but <laughs> I wouldn't be shocked if, uh, you know, empathy is not part of a good parent's toolkit. It must be. But you can't only empathize with a child because otherwise you're like, you know what, you're right. Uh, you should not eat those vegetables. I totally understand how you feel. <laughs> right, <laughs> I, right. I, I get it. And, um, you know, yeah, end of story. 
forget the vegetables, forget the cleaning up the room, forget you know, forget all these other things that are an imposition on the child's world from that from the parent, but done for good reasons. That's right. Yep. The, the empathy reveals what's important to the kid or what their struggle is in that situation. And when you turn it off, then it's like, well, I've got this information now and I can use that to, to move us forward to where we need to go. Right. And not that um, our clients or customers are children, but yet I think if we have that attitude of there's areas where they are childlike compared to us, perhaps in their expertise or uh, and, and they need the sort of protection that a child would have. And maybe that's the context for thinking about how empathy is used to help our clients. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, on the kid thing, we've, we've got my oldest kid is just about to turn 12. Mm. And she's always been a very mature kid. And one of the things that we found is anytime we've had behavior challenges, once we actually started to dig into what was going on, it almost always had to do with her having this huge need for independence. And so as contrary as it seemed, we realized, well, she's, you know, she's, she's got all these constraints. We're making her do these things. Well, we can take some of those off of her and let her actually be more free. And that has always been the thing that's helped, mm. but without, you know, empathizing and, and asking those questions, we couldn't understand it. And then I think as far as, you know, when we, when we think about applying that to clients, which I think was your second, mm-hmm. your second point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's important to, understand what it is that people are trying to accomplish and then you as the expert and you know when you're well positioned and when you're you're narrowly focused enough you should be the expert in in how to do something at that point people don't really want you to continue to empathize with them they want you to use that empathy so that you can take your expertise and help them use your expertise in the most valuable way and you know you should have experience for if you know if you're doing the same thing over and over, then you should be able to recognize different situations and how to get people to to the place they need to go. And that's that's really what they're trying to get you to do. Well, Eric, I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Um, I want to thank you. This was just a super enjoyable conversation, and I want to ask where folks can go to find out more because I'm pretty sure I've seen you writing about this stuff so they could read what you've written, but maybe they want to contact you directly or what have you. Sure. Sure. Well, I'm on Twitter. I'm Eric M white. I've also got um, Alan and I have a site that's perpetually under construction at idealizedinnovation.com, or I have a personal website, which is just ericmwhite.com. Great. Eric, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great talking to you.